The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. It's worth pointing out that all of the data on which we make decisions to treat people's blood pressure are based on trials in which the way they measured blood pressure is pretty different from how we do it in clinical practice. There are several studies that suggest uh, that these risk calculators overestimate risk. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Today we're going to discuss an article titled Hypertension Limbo, Balancing Benefits, Harms, and Patient Preferences Before We Lower the Bar on Blood Pressure. This article appears in the Annals of Internal Medicine, January 23, 2018 issue. Our guest today is Devin Consagra. He's Associate Professor of Medicine at Arkin Health and Science University. He teaches primary care and hospital-based internal medicine at the VA Portland Healthcare System. He has a master's in clinical research and is the director of the Portland Evidence-Based Synthesis Program. He's a member and incoming vice chair of the ACP Clinical Practice Guidelines Committee and a co-author of this editorial. The introductory quotes highlight some of the topics that we discussed. We're going to look at the strengths and weaknesses of the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association new guideline on hypertension. We'll also discuss some of the concerns which include side effects of aggressive hypertension treatment, patient preference on hypertension treatment, the labeling of 30 million people as being hypertensive who prior to this guideline were not considered hypertensive, and the possibility that this guideline might be used as a performance measure and what the implications would be of that performance measure. Uh, This editorial points out the strengths of that guideline and the challenges of that guideline. So I'm going to ask Devin first uh, to talk about what most people consider the major strength of that guideline, which is a way to measure blood pressure accurately and make decisions about blood pressure in a systematic way. So with that, we will start our discussion. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Thanks so much, Dr. Centaur, for having me. Um, yes, I, I agree. The uh, One of the key strengths of the ACC AHA guideline document, which is extensive, is their section on blood pressure measurement. They go into a fair amount of detail about how to measure blood pressure uh, accurately and some of the pitfalls with inaccurate blood pressure measurement. Um, So it's worth pointing out that all of the data on which we make decisions to treat people's blood pressure are based on trials in which uh, the way they measured blood pressure 
is pretty different from how we do it in clinical practice. So to give you an idea of this, in the SPRINT trial, for instance, um, they use these automated blood pressure cuffs. So they'd have a patient come in, they would rest the patient for five minutes in a quiet room, and then the blood pressure cuff was set to automatically inflate with nobody in the room, uh, you know, five minutes after they had been sitting quietly. And, and those would be the blood pressures that they used to base treatment decisions on. Um, as I'm sure you can attest to, and, and many of the listeners can attest, this is different from the way we do it in clinical practice. So when you compare these research quality blood pressures to typical office practice blood pressures, the differences can be large, up to 10 to 20 uh, points uh, different uh, in, in the systolic blood pressure between the two methods. So um, ACCA AHA does a good job of pointing out uh, some of these issues and encourages clinicians to um, base their treatment decisions on accurate blood pressure measurements. Um, and they do emphasize home blood pressure measurement and so, you know, that's an interesting uh, direction, um, and I, I'm sure some clinicians are already doing that in, in many other settings, um, getting the infrastructure and, and programs uh, up and running that'll allow a kind of consistent home blood pressure measurement, you know, I think it'll be an interesting task. In your work at the Portland VA, are you considering the possibility of trying to measure blood pressures in a similar way to uh, the guideline recommendations from ACCAHA? Uh, we've talked a little bit about it, but as you can imagine, there are substantial logistical issues to doing so. So having just the space available to have somebody sit quietly for five minutes, you know, before anybody interacts with them is a challenge uh, in and of itself. So, you know, we've not overcome that challenge yet. So, um, you know, it's something that, that I think we need to look into, but I think there's a lot of logistical challenges that have to do with space and clinic workflow and, you know, nurse time and physician time and so forth. That, but that it sounds like if you were going to be setting up a private practice or you had the space in a private practice that you would try to go to this five-minute method rather than the way we generally have uh, checked blood pressures. Yes, exactly. I, I think that's you know, if there's one key take-home point from the ACCAHA guidelines, it's that we need to think carefully about how we measure blood pressures and perhaps uh, even changing the way our clinics are structured. So, you know, maybe there's an opportunity with newer clinics that are uh, getting off the ground to, to do this uh, right off the bat. Uh, so it's not only the five minutes, it's also having the patient seated with their feet on the floor, their arm rested on, uh, on a surface, uh, and, and so forth. So uh, there's a lot to it. Great. Now, the American College of Physicians and the American Academy of Family Physicians had a guideline that was being used, but it's quite different from the cardiology guideline that came out. Could you emphasize for us the key differences, and then we'll try to get into the weeds and understand uh, why those differences occurred and why you and your co-authors on the editorial uh, were concerned about the differences? Sure. One of the main differences is just the scope of the two guidelines. So the ACP uh, AAFP guidelines were focused on treatment targets in older individuals, uh, those over age 60. 
And the reason for that was these guidelines kind of originated in the wake of the JNC-8 guidelines, uh, which had come out a few years ago and had uh, recommended uh, raising the blood pressure target um, in older individuals to 150. And, and so that was the focus of that, whereas the ACCAHA guidelines were much more broadly scoped and kind of covered everything soup to nuts on hypertension management. Um, another key difference is obviously the recommendations themselves. So the, the main recommendation of the ACP guidelines is that for most individuals over age 60, a, a treatment target of uh, systolic blood pressure of 150 uh, millimeters of mercury was was recommended, um, while a uh, individualized approach to considering lower blood pressure targets of less than 140 and beyond were recommended for patients with prior stroke and uh, in those at high cardiovascular risk. Uh, the ACCAHA guidelines have a, a lot of recommendations in terms of their treatment target recommendations. The big difference is the, the blood pressure target and also the blood pressure level at which to uh, initiate drug treatment. So they're recommending initiating drug treatment for patients with or without known cardiovascular disease who have a elevated uh, cardiovascular risk, which they define as a 10-year uh, ASCVD risk of greater than or equal to 10%. Um, so of note, and as they note, everyone with diabetes, chronic kidney disease, or uh, 65 years and older would be in the high-risk category. Um, they recommend initiating treatment for pretty much everyone who doesn't have known cardiovascular disease or elevated um, cardiovascular risk, uh, initiating blood pressure treatment at a blood pressure of 140 over 90. And that the target to reach for everyone, um, high risk and, and low risk, was uh, recommended to be 130 over 80. So that really is what got all the headlines and certainly when I've talked to other uh, internists and family physicians, it's sort of hard for us to swallow. Um, again, this is one of the reasons that I was so excited when I read this discussion. One of the things that I think is worth mentioning uh, right up front because uh, the ACP guidelines seem to be the best at this, and that is including patient preferences. Um, the members of the guidelines committee at ACP tend to be very patient-centered thinking in terms of treatment. Could you say a little bit about the patient preference piece that seems to be missing from some of these other guidelines? Yeah, I, I think that's a key piece. So, so it's not only the patient preference piece, but also just the, the notion of evaluating harms in general. And so one of the key elements that are missing from the ACC AHA guidelines and the systematic review on which they're based is that they didn't look at potential harms at all, nor did they um, kind of evaluate in the balance what the patient values and preferences might be. So in making any decision about uh, whether or not to initiate or intensify treatment, we think it's, it's critical to also consider the potential harms and also um, how patients might uh, vary in their preferences uh, regarding the treatment. So the more that we anticipate that patients would vary about how much they would prefer a treatment or not, the, the weaker the, the, the recommendation. So in terms of patient preferences, there's actually some interesting work uh, done in the geriatrics literature where they've actually 
asked older patients about preferences for taking medications to reduce cardiovascular risk, you know, including blood pressure medications and other things. Um, and they found that preferences vary a great deal. And they depend a lot on the potential harm. So when older patients are making decisions about cardiovascular risk reduction medications, they think long and hard about potential harm. And they're thinking about uh, even things that might be considered as kind of minor harms in a trial, uh, you know, daily nausea, uh, feeling unwell. Uh, and certainly if harms were raised to the level of impacting one's um, functional status, um, uh, older patients, uh, the vast, vast majority would, would decline to, to uh, take cardiovascular risk reduction medications. So as I understand the ACP, AAFP guideline, a conversation with the patient is a key part of this and, and documenting, well, we're not going to treat this blood pressure for these concerns about harms is a legitimate strategy. Right, exactly. So I'm sure all clinicians can relate to um, the, the uh, kind of differing patient profiles. So you might have a 70-year-old patient who's on 10 different medications, who um, has some degree of frailty, um, is kind of sick of taking all their medications, and who has a blood pressure of, say, you know, 145 or 150 even, uh, for that patient, it might be very reasonable to say, uh, you know, look, a potential option is to intensify your medication, or it might be reasonable to leave you where you're at, uh, and for that patient to decide that given their existing pill burden, uh, their existing symptoms, that the, um, you know, risks of taking an additional medication might outweigh the benefits. Uh, you might have another patient who's 70-year-old, uh, robust, uh, hikes every day, is only on two or three medications, um, and is at high cardiovascular risk for whom a lower blood pressure goal might indeed be the way to go. So let's talk about this high cardiovascular risk. Uh, as someone who's over 65, um, I plug my numbers in, and apparently I'm at high cardiovascular risk. Um, despite a good blood pressure, a good cholesterol, a good HDL, and no family history. Um, it seems to me that that risk calculator, uh, from a personal point of view, uh, it feels like it's overestimating my risk. Uh, I feel like I'm at lower risk than most people my age. What do we know about that risk calculator, and, and is it that valid uh, a way to make decisions? Yeah, so there's a few points here. Um, one is that the ACCAHA chose the ASCVD risk calculator, which is the one that they had kind of developed, uh, and that is in use for the statin guidelines. Um, and that the importance of this is that it, this is different from what was used in the SPRINT trial. And the SPRINT trial is really, uh, when you come down to it, the main piece of evidence underlying the recommendation for a lower treatment target. Um, in the SPRINT trial, they included people who either had known cardiovascular disease, though they excluded patients with a prior history of stroke or with prior history of diabetes, uh, or who had a Framingham uh, risk score of uh, 15% over 10 years. And of note, the, the mean Framingham score in the SPRINT uh, population was, was over 20. So, uh, you know, one difference is that 
the choice of the risk calculator itself. You know, there's some interesting data where they look at predicted uh, risk according to some of these risk scores, including the ASCVD risk calculator, and compare them to observed events. And um, there's several studies that suggest uh, that these risk calculators overestimate risk. So it might say your risk is X percent, but when you actually look at the number of events people have in real life, um, they have fewer events. And as the authors of the ACCAHA guideline themselves note, the ASCVD risk calculator was uh, not uh, initially validated in patients who were on statin therapy. Uh, so that's important because uh, we have so many patients who are also on statin therapy. So um, what that means for the accuracy of the, the risk calculators is another um, issue. So uh, I want to get back to the SPRINT trial, but there are two, a couple of other things that you mentioned uh, in this editorial. One is the problem of labeling patients. Certainly the uh, new cardiology guideline makes more people hypertensive. And that means more people get a label of having a disease, which is now on their medical record. And uh, there's a very interesting sentence in the editorial uh, about the adverse health and economic consequences of having a label. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so there's some uh, really interesting data, and in, in some of which dates back several decades where they've looked prospectively at the effects of labeling. Uh, so there's one classic study uh, looking at the effect of labeling people as hypertensive. So these are asymptomatic people, and you basically just told them they had hypertension. And after telling them they had, they had hypertension, uh, work absenteeism uh, went up, uh, and you know, kind of self-perceived illness went up as well. Um, and others have done other studies over the years. So you know, there is some real tangible adverse effect from just being labeled with the condition when you were asymptomatic to begin with. So, you know, I don't think it's a small issue. And um, these guidelines by redefining what hypertension is would, I believe, label an additional 30 million people uh, in this country as, as hypertensive. So uh, it, it's not a small number. So that obviously, um, I'm really glad uh, that this editorial points that out, and I think that's a very significant issue. Another issue that uh, is mentioned in there is whether you should target treatment according to diastolic blood pressure versus systolic blood pressure. And I know that the uh, ACP, AAFP guideline did not think that there was enough evidence to treat to a diastolic blood pressure, but rather with a target of a systolic blood pressure. Could you expand on that? Yeah, so the ACP AAFP uh, guidelines don't uh, make a recommendation based on diastolic targets at all, uh, simply because there wasn't sufficient evidence on which to base a recommendation on. So the ACP is, you know, steadfast in, in wanting to put out guideline recommendations that are uh, evidence-based and, um, and not expert opinion-based uh, guidelines. So that's why they, they just don't have a recommendation on diastolic targets. Um, you know, the, the evidence we do have about diastolic treatment targets mainly comes from the HOT trial, the Hypertension Optimal Treatment Trial, which was a huge trial, 18,000 people, and they compared three different diastolic targets. 
And the long and short of it is that uh, lower targets below diastolic targets of 90, uh, they had two other groups, uh, diastolic targets of 80 and 85, the lower treatment targets groups didn't have an overall benefit in terms of mortality or cardiovascular events. So, you know, we didn't think that there was good empirical evidence to support a diastolic target of 80, uh, certainly. Uh, so, so we don't have any information that suggests that the diastolic sh target should be uh, under 90, which is what has kind of conventionally been used. And even then, we just don't have a lot of data to guide exactly what the target should be. So as I read this commentary and quite a few other articles I read, um, most of this new guideline is based upon the SPRINT trial. But the SPRINT trial does not seem to answer all the questions that one might ask uh, before you develop a guideline. And it seemed, as I read it, that they sort of overextended and overused uh, insufficient data from the SPRINT trial. Now. I come from a mindset of, I sort of like the target of 150 over 90, it seemed right to me, and so maybe I'm biased. As the ACP Guidelines Committee read this, expand on the SPRINT trial and why it appears you believe that there's a little bit of an overemphasis on that trial. Yeah, so I think it's a key point, what the role of SPRINT is and how uh, widely its findings should be applied. Uh, so I think that's the key reason for differences of opinion uh, here. So I, I think there's, you know, fair consensus that SPRINT was a large, well-done, important trial, w which probably um, should influence practice for some patients, um, notably those at high cardiovascular risk, um, notably also those who had treated hypertension, right? So. 90% of the patients included in SPRINT were already on blood pressure medications. And like in any trial where a patient population uh, who were adherent to trial follow-up and so forth. So, um, you know, I, I think ACP's opinion on how broadly to apply SPRINT came down to a few issues. One is that uh, one needs to be cautious in broadly applying trial results because benefits in the real world are often uh, less pronounced than they are in trials and, and the harms might be greater than uh, one finds. Uh, there were some notable harms in SPRINT including an increased risk of syncope, uh, symptomatic hypotension and some electrolyte abnormalities and other things that uh, wouldn't be surprising to, uh, to many clinicians. And um, also that there's some important discrepancies when you look across trials. So there's several trials that compared a lower treatment target to a more moderate treatment target. And, and SPRINT is really, you know, kind of the standout in terms of finding a benefit. Um, you know, the, the main trial uh, with which it's compared is the ACCORD trial, which was largely a negative trial. Um, and so the reasons for the differences in results aren't entirely clear. So that was another reason the ACP was uh, less um, willing to broadly extend the sprint findings and, and rather was in favor of kind of more narrowly applying it on an individual uh, patient basis and those with high cardiovascular risk were at lower risk for some of the harms and were kind of willing to um, intensify their blood pressure treatment. 
So let me get this down to I'm in practice and I'm seeing a new patient. Um, a 70-year-old man has a blood pressure of 145 over 90. Um, this man doesn't smoke, doesn't have a strong family history, hasn't had any cardiovascular events, and never been told he's hypertensive, uh, does not have diabetes. According to the ACC AHAA guideline, he now is considered hypertensive and a candidate for treatment. According to the ACP AAFP, he's not hypertensive and not uh, a candidate for treatment at this time, but rather to follow him. Is, did I get that right? Right. So the patient you describe, I, I haven't plugged them into the, you know, the Framingham risk score or anything, but uh, it would probably be a, a, not a high-risk patient. Um, and so, you know, monitoring lifestyle change, you know, recommending um, exercise and dietary changes, which, which, by the way, the ACC and AHA guidelines do a good job of emphasizing, uh, we should note, um, would be a reasonable approach. Um, I should say first, you know, the first task is to confirm the blood pressure measurement and uh, uh, recheck it at a different point in time, perhaps do some home blood pressure measurements uh, and so forth. But yes, it was confirmed that that was the blood pressure, you know, following with with lifestyle changes would be be reasonable. uh, I always worry about performance measures because one of the things that influences what we do in both the inpatient and outpatient setting is the report cards we get, the messages we get on how we're doing, uh, and sometimes even our income is at risk for that. Especially with uh, MACRA and MIPS, uh, having a performance measure can uh, be a very important uh, force in our practice, and I know that's true with the VA also. Um, If the performance measurement people adopt the ACC AHI AHA guideline, do you believe that the potential harm is greater than the benefits? And what harms are we really worried about? You mentioned some harms that actually occurred in the SPRINT trial, and that was a very, anytime you have a clinical trial, it's a very highly selected, highly adherent, highly motivated population that might be quite different from the patients we're actually seeing in our office. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think the performance measurement issue is really important because, you know, all of a sudden you've taken something that you know, might be a good idea for some people, uh, but then you've, you've made it something that would apply to a large population of people, um, which likely accentuates the potential for harm without a clear um, increase in, in benefit. Um, so as I had pointed out, and as you, as you were just describing as well, you know, the application of trial evidence uh, broadly, uh, there's some issues with that. Uh, the inconsistencies amongst the trials also raise some concerns. And, um, you know, what this looks like when you apply it to a large population of people, especially since it's easier, I think, to target a number. You know, it's easy to remember a number and to simply have an algorithm saying, okay, we're going to intensify or start treatment to target this number than it is to do all the things you need to do to measure blood pressure accurately. Uh, So one of the concerns is that in practical kind of implementation terms, if people uh, 
adopt performance measures based on these guidelines and largely focus just on the numbers, um, you know, we might have even greater potential for widespread harm because we'd be um, basing decisions on inaccurate measurements potentially and um, as we've already been discussing, treating people to a pretty low target where one could argue about how broadly that should really be applied. So, so, so we think a more cautious, kind of narrowly focused approach uh, is reasonable um, in the near term. So th- this has really been uh, a great conversation. Uh, I believe uh, you really did a great job of describing the ACC AHAA guideline, um, what the excellent parts of it are, and what the concerns are. Uh, what happens a lot of times is there's a confirmation bias where if you really believe in lowering blood pressure, you look at all the good of the sprint trial and you want to generalize that to everyone and you minimize your thoughts about the harms. Those of us who take care of a lot of patients who are not in trials, uh, worry a lot about the harms because that's what the patients tell us about. Um, There's legitimate uh, difference of opinions. I happen to side with the editorial and I think this is going to be an ongoing concern of the members of the ACP, the American Academy of Family Physicians, and all other internists and family physicians. Your insights have really helped us understand the problem and we greatly appreciate it. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. It's time for Bob's Pearls. Clearly, the new American College of Cardiology American Heart Association guidelines for hypertension have spurred some controversy. There is no controversy, though, on the proper way to measure blood pressure. Prior to labeling our patients as hypertensive, They should have their blood pressure taken in a quiet area after sitting down for five minutes with their feet on the floor, as is done in all of the hypertension research studies. Alternatively, 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring seems to be a better way to diagnose hypertension than random blood pressure in the office. The editorial pointed out some significant concerns about adopting all of the new ACC AHAA hypertension guidelines. If we label 30 million new Americans as being hypertensive, there are unintended consequences. As Dr. Consagra pointed out, patients with this label are more likely to miss work, even if they were asymptomatic prior to receiving the diagnosis. We raised significant concerns about developing performance measures based upon these new guidelines, especially since there continues to be a controversy over the proper guideline. Finally, the American College of Physicians Guidelines Committee feels strongly that you have to always consider the unintensive consequences of lowering blood pressure too much and patient preferences. I thought it was interesting that they pointed out that there seemed to be no benefit in randomized controlled trials of lowering the diastolic blood pressure below 90. When they compared 80 to 85 to 90, they got no difference. 
So our diastolic target of 90 seems very solid. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and have a better understanding of the controversy over the new hypertension guidelines. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.